From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. In talking about Bitcoin and crypto, one of the issues and one of the challenges, I think it was initially called out uh, notably by Elon Musk of Tesla, is the carbon footprint left by Bitcoin mining. Our next guest thinks they have a solution here. Paul Prager, CEO and founder of TerraWolf. They are based in Easton, East, I'm sorry, Easton, Maryland. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about carbon neutral Bitcoin mining. Is that even a real thing at this point? Yeah, hi, Paul here, and thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Terrell is all about zero carbon emissions. We've got 60,000 miners on order. It's 200 megawatts. We have 50 megawatts of mining capacity targeted for this year, 375 for next, and 800 in our pipe. And, and, and we're targeting zero carbon emissions. That's not sort of getting even carbon neutral. That's zero carbon emissions. Our energy resources are nuclear power and hydro. How do you do that, though? How do you get 90% clean energy for Bitcoin? So, um, so nuclear doesn't emit any carbon and hydro doesn't emit any carbon. And I, you know, the genesis of TerraWolf was my company, Beowulf. I've been in the energy infrastructure business for almost 30 years. At its very core, at the very core of Bitcoin mining is energy infrastructure. So it's the process of taking a locally produced commodity like electricity from a sustainable resource, hydro and nuke, turning it into a globally traded commodity that stores value. So that's what we do. We have a power purchase agreement on a nuclear power facility in Pennsylvania, and we have a site infrastructure ready uh, that will be online this year with hydropower coming to it. All right. So, Paul, you know, right now the infrastructure bill in, in, here in the studio, we're watching video of the senators on the Senate floor voting right now as we speak, uh, would require miners like TerraWolf to report tax data to the IRS that I don't even think you even have access to. What would that requirement mean for miners like you and for the crypto industry more broadly? Yeah, listen, I generally would say legislation and regulation is a very good thing for the Bitcoin industry, right? It just further substantiates the legitimacy of Bitcoin. So I think it's a winner no matter what. Second of all, I believe that there'll be several bites at proper legislation uh, to ensure that we're, we're given 
responsibilities for things we can comply with. Um, I, I, I know that they'll focus uh, on the details as it goes into the House. But generally, we like regulation. It's something, again, I've been in the power business for 30 years. We've lived with their entire life. And when legislation does come, I think it's going to come you know, along the lines of what's the energy resource. You know, I think it likely comes in the form of a carbon tax. I don't, mm. I don't think that legislation will be burdensome, if you will, just because you're mining Bitcoin or holding Bitcoin. Legislation and regulation in the U.S. is one thing, but it's not the only player that's regulating uh, the crypto space. I mean, in China, the government banning mining, and I'm wondering how that affected your operations. I mean, I, I look at what China did as a crackdown as opposed to responsible legislation. Hmm. Um, I think it was it was a, listen net net. It was a, it was a great result for us. Uh, we saw the hash rate come down, so we were able to get a bigger piece of the pie uh, if you're an early mover in Bitcoin mining. Second of all, there was a shortage of miners, um, and, and now they're readily available, and they're at better prices and terms. So I think uh, we were able to sort of get a more prominent uh, position and we're able to sort of um, get a bigger piece of the pie now, uh, being that we're ready to roll here, as opposed to where the difficulty rate was much higher uh, just six months ago. Did you see uh, an influx of Chinese miners after they banned mining? Yeah, there are many, uh, you know, really good quality credit Chinese miners that are looking uh, to come to the United States. Um, there were some things, though, here that you have to think about. You have to have a site. You have to have uh, it permitted properly. You have to have transformers so you could step down the power. So I think, again, where Terrawolf's advantage is we have these sites, we have the electricity contracted for, we have the transformers, and the sites are shovel-ready. And so there's a, there's a significant first-mover advantage. But yeah, I think Chinese miners are very much trying to come here. And I think that's good for Bitcoin, right? You're decentralizing uh, it, a lot of Chinese migration to the United States. And um, I, I think that's all a, a win for Bitcoin. Obviously, a lot of this does come down at the end of the day to concerns about the environmental impact. And there's a lot of conversation when we talk about investing and, you know, treating our money with the environment in mind and kind of these ESG issues. There is a question of greenwashing. How do you convince people that what you're doing at Terra Wolf is not that? Uh, well, we're, you know, again, we are about zero carbon emissions. So there's a big difference between what we do, for instance, and another mining company that, let's say, uses a thermal resource and tries to get to carbon neutrality by buying carbon credits. We don't have carbon emissions, so it's not an issue for us. And I believe that uh, the industry in general is very responsible, and they disclose where their energy resources are coming from. And so I think that ultimately investors will pick and choose based on what their approach is. I think that the other way that will be, you know, a, a big factor is going to be in value. Again, we think that legislation to the Bitcoin mining industry will come more likely in the form of a carbon tax. So that will drive the cost uh, on the margins for miners that are emitting carbon to a higher level than they will, for instance, for TerraWolf. So I think at the end of the day, that's where the rubber will hit the road and people will see the difference in the value opportunity. 
Paul, on uh, June of this year, Terrawolf, um, you, I guess you merged with Iconics, a, a SPAC. Give us an update on that transaction and kind of right. where you are on that. Sure. Yeah, we did a reverse combination. It's not a SPAC. Okay. In fact, it's a reverse merger uh, where we merge into a, a currently listed company called Iconics, IKNX, uh, and we've filed our S4 proxy last week. Uh, we await, you know, all the customary approvals, SEC, everybody that needs to chop on it. And, and hopefully uh, sometime late in the third quarter, early fourth quarter, we'll be trading on the NASDAQ uh, under the ticker WULF, Wolf. Very excited about it. It's a great transaction. Iconics was a great company, really clean balance sheet, and so it made a lot of sense. And do you view now as a, a friendly time to come to the public markets? Absolutely. I mean, there are there are several comps out there, so that that's a positive thing in terms of helping people sort of take a look at 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 the industry and get a handle on value. I also think that if you take a look at what what what's in the infrastructure bill today, legislation means that Bitcoin is here to stay. It's part of the ecosystem. It's an important part of it. It's an important generator of revenue and a store of value. So absolutely, couldn't be a better time for us. Well, you mentioned that infrastructure bill, Paul, and we just had the headline crossing the terminal that $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill has passed uh, the U.S. Senate. We understand that uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris will gavel that vote. But again, that measure has passed. This is the first part of President Biden's long-term economic spending uh, plans, Paul, but it has passed that hurdle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's obviously important. And now we will go on to the other uh, bigger, broader spending plan. Paul Prager, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, hearing that story. Paul Prager, CEO and founder of Terrawolf, based in Easton, Maryland. And again, as uh, Kaylee was just reporting, the uh, Senate has passed the infrastructure package. The Senate, as we said, is voting as we speak on this uh, infrastructure bill. And one of the holdups was cryptocurrency and taxation of cryptocurrency. I did not see that coming. Uh, I was thinking about maybe they're talking about a a road or a bridge that needed to be included or excluded, but no, it was crypto. Um, Let's get some color on that. We welcome Meltem Demir's uh, chief strategy officer for CoinShares Group. They have about $5 billion in assets under management. Meltem, thanks so much for joining us here. What can you tell us about what is or is not in this legislation as it relates to cryptocurrencies? Yes, great to be here, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, Look, if there's anything we've learned over the last five days, it's that lawmaking in the United States is a very complicated process that many of us, as it turns out, don't really understand so well. Um, (laughs) I think that's maybe an understatement. So here's basically what happened. Um, Within the infrastructure bill, there were certain provisions that sought to raise tax revenue, and one of those provisions was clear definition around what types of entities in the cryptocurrency space would be required to provide tax reporting in the form of 1099s and those other documents that your broker would typically send you at the end of the year. And one of the key issues was, was in the initial language in the proposed infrastructure bill, the definition of 
of what constituted a broker was really, really broad so that it would include cryptocurrency developers, software developers, Bitcoin miners, people operating nodes in different open blockchain networks. And basically the language was really unworkable. Hmm. And so we saw a slew of amendments that came out in the the three days that followed, including an amendment um, sponsored by Senator Toomey, one sponsored by Senator Portman, and another by Senator Cruz. None of those amendments were voted on. The infrastructure bill passed as is, but certainly uh, know that the House will be taking up this cause, and we don't think this issue is by any means over um, as, as it stands. So what does it actually mean for the crypto market and crypto investors if it does indeed happen as it stands? Yeah, I, I think, again, um, the impact of this, this bill is that it would impose a lot of reporting obligations on t- entities that aren't really reporting entities. A lot of activity in the crypto space is done through regulated platforms that are registered as brokers. You might know names like Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini, all of whom are exchanges that operate here in the United States, and they're already providing tax reporting documents to their users. But under this new language, there are entities like software developers who might develop an open source piece of software that's used by anonymous people on the internet that would now be responsible for reporting. And again, those individuals are not going to have any idea who's downloaded their software and how they're using it. That's the Mm -hmm. whole point of peer-to-peer open source software. So I think one of the challenges is really the way that the law has been written and the way that this technology actually works, they're really fundamentally incompatible. And we continue to see this on the regulatory front. This is a new type of technology. And I think lawmakers in D.C. are really struggling to understand how it fits into the existing regulatory frameworks that we have. So, Meltem, I, I know you've spent time in Washington, D.C. talking crypto to the folks down there. And I read a story just today about how this whole five days maybe have illustrated the fact that the crypto industry really needs to up their lobbying game. (laughs) What are your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, a number of firms have been in Washington, D.C. over the last seven years that I've been working in this industry. And seven years doesn't feel like a lot, but for the crypto industry, you know, it feels like like a lifetime, certainly. I think at the end of the day, there's sort of this fundamental misperception, even in Washington, D.C., that crypto is not regulated, which is simply false. There's an alphabet soup of agencies from the SEC to the CFTC to the IRS to the CFPB who oversee crypto, who have issued guidance and continue to issue guidance. So I think what's really needed is more education and advocacy. But also, I think what we're starting to see, 15% of Americans own some type of cryptocurrency. This Mm. is becoming an important voter issue. And in the next election cycle, you better believe that there are a number of Americans who are really motivated and want to see a crypto policy platform from their elected officials. So I believe in future cycles, not only will we see more lobbying, more advocacy from the crypto industry in D.C., but on the flip side, we'll also see more representatives, more elected officials recognizing that in order to get elected, an important part of their platform will need to be progressive policy when it comes to not just cryptocurrencies themselves, but blockchain technology and that critical digital infrastructure for America. But regulation at the end of the day, Meltem, doesn't just come from Capitol Hill and from legislators. We also have, you know, the Gensler SEC. And, And on that front, are you hopeful at all that we'll see a Bitcoin ETF? 
Um, look, I, I think the Bitcoin ETF, this is something we're, we're an asset manager. We don't have any products in the U.S. market. We'd love to have a product in the U.S. market. But thus far, the regulatory regime here has simply not allowed for a publicly listed ETF or ETP that tracks the underlying price of Bitcoin to exist in this market. We are optimistic that in the next three to five years, we will see more structured product in the U.S. market, but we're not optimistic that it will happen in the near term. Hmm. Again, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, and we have to date no less than 13 ETF applications that have been filed and a number of mutual fund applications that are in process. We'll continue to see more filings, more applications, but I think um, Chairman Gensler of the SEC made it perfectly clear that his administration certainly does not have planned to approve any ETF or any such product construction in the near term. So I think for us, you know, the outlook we have is sometime in the next nine to 12 months might be possible, but more realistically, we're looking at 2022 at the earliest. All right, Meltem, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective. Meltem Demir's Chief Strategy Officer for CoinShares based in London. And that ETF question is really on top of people's minds, mm -hmm. uh, Kaylee. And as Meltem mentioned, uh, um, Mr. Gensler of the SEC, kind of, he's, I think he's positive towards this, but yeah. let's take our time here. It seems like he just kind of keeps punting it yes. and punting it. Maybe yeah. a futures Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin futures ETF. Right. He kind of gave those hints, but still, we wait, Paul. A lot, yeah, a lot of demand, certainly, for an ETF for a Bitcoin. We'll follow up on that story. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's bring on right now Dr. Uh, Jack Chuang, CEO of James Hardy Industries, uh, based in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Trong, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, give us, just remind us and remind our listeners what James Hardy Industries does within the housing market. Right. Uh, good morning, Paul. Thank you for inviting me back. You know, James Hardy, we, we are the company that transformed the way the world built uh, by delivering more aesthetically beautiful, uh, safe, and more sustainable building products that really grace the exteriors of homes across um, the U.S., um, Europe, and uh, Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. And we're, um, we're about a three-plus billion-dollar com uh, company um, th that is uh, quite profitable and is growing. Uh, so obviously you have a pretty unique vantage point here into the housing market and the dynamics within it. Given how high home prices are, how quickly houses are going off the market, are people now just looking more to renovate the homes they're currently in than trying to buy a new one? Um, Kaylee, that is a very good insight. That is correct. Um, because if we look at the uh, new home construction in the U.S. today, uh, it is um, not uh, enough home built to meet the, uh, the really the growing demand because we do have a very big group of millennials now 
uh, really um, start to, to go into the ha um, housing markets with a growing family. And also at the same time, we have a lot of uh, folks now that, that stay at home, that work from home, and, and they would like to do a lot more renovation. Um, but with, with the rising prices, what that means is that uh, a lot of homeowners want to look at how they can renovate their homes, um, uh, but yet at the same time enhance the value of, of their home. Um, so we do see a lot of activities that, uh, that deal with um, the outdoor, the, the, how to improve the exterior of, of their homes, how to make their outdoor living space uh, a, a lot more pleasant, but, and yet at the same time enhance the value of their home. All right. Uh, we just want to update our listeners on the vote ongoing on Capitol Hill on that $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure package. That vote is still ongoing, but we understand that the Senate does have the votes to pass that bipartisan infrastructure plan. So we will continue uh, to bring you up to date. But it does look like, Paul, that measure is going to pass. Yes, that's uh, coming in on, on schedule. So we'll have more of that coming up. Dr. Trung, I mean, as you take a look at going out here, I mean, how do you think about housing demand, just broadly speaking, over the next several quarters, whether it's renovation, new construction, what, what's your market outlook? Um, our market outlook is very robust and very strong. Um, and what we see is the, the renovation market will continue to, um, to uh, grow uh, because a lot more um, um, homeowners would like to renovate their homes. Um, so we do see that being to, can be growing to, uh, quite nicely. Uh, and certainly in new uh, construction, uh, there is also strong demand, uh, but uh, that is that sector is a little bit more limited uh, with the uh, uh, lack of skilled labor and then to a certain degree, uh, lack of uh, materials, certain materials. Yeah, you know, we, we talk a lot about supply chain constraints and, and the higher input costs that have resulted from that. Are you charging more for your products? Uh, we're, we're, we're not charging more as much as we are offering to more about uh, di differentiated uh, products. For example, we uh, in in the Hardy brand exterior product, they're going to outside of um, really protect the homes of uh, um, of, the, of the house. And uh, what we offer is the Hardy brand products that, that have already been pre-finished in our factory with paint. And that would allow the homeowners to have different design in their homes and be able to, uh, to really um, protect their homes uh, with um, uh, very durable products, aesthetically pleasing product, and also enhance the value of their home. Um, and that type of material is actually uh, a lot more easy to in install and, and fast to install. So essentially, uh, would provide the alternative to the homeowners relative to bricks or stucco um, that's more expensive and um, also um, the slower to build. So we, we offer the alternative to, to, to those solutions. So we saw in 2020, Jack, you know, a kind of a folks just kind of leaving urban centers, leaving the cities, going for the burbs, looking for more space. Is this a trend that you think is going to continue and we'll see that in, in construction trends or do you expect people to kind of come back, if you will, to some of those urban centers? Um, we, we do see a lot of um, trend moving out into the burbs. Uh, but also lately, uh, within, I would say the past uh, few months, that uh, we do see the, my, some certain migration back into uh, the, uh, the cities is because of the affordability of certain homes out in the burbs. 
So it's quite um, the move, moving back and forth really depends on the availability of homes. Because there's certainly there's a lot more demand right now than the supply. Yeah, where there also is a lot of demand is for workers. We saw with the JOLTS data here in the U.S. yesterday, there's something like more than 10 million jobs that are open, more than there are, in fact, of people unemployed here in the U.S. I know you have over 4,800 employees globally. I'm wondering how many openings you have and if you're struggling to fill them. Um, it, it certainly um, it is an, an area that, um, that, that, that we also uh, experience in the shortage of labor. And certainly in markets uh, in the West Coast that we, we experience a higher um, shortage of uh, labor in, in, in our facilities. Uh, and, and, you know, it's really about come, coming down to having the right uh, um, the, uh, value proposition for working at James Hardy. And uh, it is some, something that we work very closely with local communities to, um, to really tell the story, to be able to attract the right candidates um, in, into our workforce. But certainly that, is, uh, that has been an, uh, an, an issue that um, persists uh, throughout the whole summer for us as well. All right, so I see your stock all-time high. Just real quickly, how are your earnings? Uh, we, we just reported our um, uh, earnings uh, yesterday, and um, is, we're, we're very pleased with the results. Uh, globally, our net sales increased by 35%, and our net income increased uh, by 50%. And what's very pleasing here is that uh, all three regions that we operate in, North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, all had uh, double-digit growth in both uh, top line and bottom line. And it's really a testament to not only the uh, growing markets that we operate in, but also at the same time, we we're able to take share in the marketplace and deliver more values to the homeowners across the world. All right, Dr. Jack Trong, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Uh, CEO of James Hardy Industries, uh, strong results of just recently in their stock hitting an all-time high and the growth of the housing market. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Kaylee, we've got some wage inflation on Wall Street, I think. We've been reading stories really over the last month or so about, you know, these new investment bankers coming in. you got to pay them some more money mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. But Mary Beekert, she's a financial reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Story uh, Studio. She's got a story out today, which is really interesting. J.P. Morgan boosts pay for more staff, so not just the investment yeah. bankers, but other folks as well. Mary, thanks so much for joining us here. So who else is getting pay bumps here on Wall Street? Well, last yesterday, sorry, um, Jeffrey's group also announced that they were going to match right. Goldman Sachs, which announced last week that it would be paying its junior investment banking analysts 110000 So basically all summer, um, the banks have been raising pay to 100000 but Goldman Sachs was kind of sitting around for a little while waiting. Yeah. and. The recruiters and pay consultants I've been talking to said that they did that purposely and kind of waited to come <laughs> and They in wanted to one-up everybody. Yeah, and one-up everyone, but now Jeffrey's group is matching them, so that came out yesterday as well. But a lot, a lot of these that we've been seeing have been for the junior bankers, the lowest people on the totem pole. Well, with J.P. Morgan, it's now expanding beyond that, right? Yeah, so basically J.P. Morgan announced earlier this summer that they would be paying their junior 
investment banking analysts more, but now they're expanding it out to other analysts um, within their corporate investment banking division. So that's going to include sales, trading, and research analysts. It's all under the same division, but it's beyond just investment banking analysts now. So it seems like they're trying to attract more analysts, which means they're probably really busy this summer, which is what we've been seeing in terms of revenue. Yeah, so, you know, when I worked on Wall Street, it was, you know, obviously it was all about compensation. You started thinking about your bonus probably, you know, mid-year if the summer. You started, really started jockeying and starting to, you know, pitch and everything. Um, but now, more of the compensation is, is in salary versus bonus. So, these pay increases, are these salary increases are really important. They, they are really important. I think analysts that, any analysts that are in the job market right now are looking at what the base pay will be. And all summer long, I mean, from what we were, we've been hearing in our reporting is that Goldman Sachs was saying, we don't really need to raise our base pay, but now they've, they've come in line. I think they realize that anyone that's looking to go out and get a job as an analyst, as an investment analyst, wants to see their base pay at least 100000 They want it to match with the, where the other banks are coming in. Yeah. But we do think the bonuses are still going to be big this year. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. been a very I was going to say, these banks year. have yeah. a lot of money coming in. I would bet yeah. that the guys at the top are getting paid a, a, pretty, yeah. uh, a pretty nice sum as well. How does this tie into the work from home equation? Because you're paying people more. Does that mean I'm going to want you back in the office? I'm not going to pay you more if you're going to be sitting at home and not commuting in? Well, I think the banks, each bank has a different return to work policy going on right now. I mean, we know Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan want their people back in the office. We know that helps with camaraderie. Um, but we do think that the the, the bank, uh, sorry, the pay raises are in part to help keep the analysts that are part working from home. It has been hard working from yep. home for mm-hmm. them. They've, I mean, in March, Goldman Sachs analysts put out presentation outlining just how hard it's yeah, been. It's kind of what started this whole thing, really, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, when I, I was in the same group of these kids working 80, 90 hour weeks, and it was hard. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, but you had the camaraderie of literally being right. in a room like this where all the analysts were in a bullpen. That's what we called right. the bullpen. And you all could lean on each other and you all could go out for drinks afterwards. Exactly. And like, but boy, if you're stuck at home yeah. by yourself, right. that would be tough. So I, I guess they're trying to you know, say, hey, we recognize what you guys are going through and we want to try to help out. And one of the ways we can do it is pay more money, I guess. I think that's part of it. And then they want to keep the analysts that they have on. I mean, we know that there's been a lot of churn going on within their analyst ranks. So analysts are looking to jump out of the banks sooner than when their two-year analyst programs are up. So they're looking to go buy side. I've been hearing that. A lot of investment banking analysts that go into the banks go in just specifically to stay in for two years and get out and go buy side as fast as they can. They yeah. want to go to private equity firms. Yep. They want to go to hedge funds. They see that work as more fulfilling, more fun, kind of more like skin in the game. Yep. So yeah. that, that's... So from yeah. all the reporting and all the people you've been talking to, do you have any reason to believe this kind of race to the top in terms of the talent competition is going to cool down anytime soon? Or are we going to keep talking about these stories of banks paying people more? I don't think it's going to cool down anytime soon. It seems like it's just ramping up more and more and more. And are, they finding, hearing. are they finding competition also from like the tech industry? Because when I came yes, out of business yeah. school, Really, it was either you go to consulting, you go to investment banking, but now technology, and like the Amazons, the Apple, I mean, yes, lots of places. That's a big threat, too. I mean, not only are analysts leaving the banks to go to the buy side firms, but they're also going into tech. They're going to startups. 
Mm. Any any place that can pay them just as much, but maybe offer them a bit of a better work-life balance. I was going to say a lot of those tech companies have, you know, the massive campuses out on the right. West Coast and all of the benefits. Working from home, it seems, is more lenient yep. for a lot of those kind of Silicon Valley players than it is for banks on Wall Street, Paul. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's going to be a big issue. And we've seen that from, you know, the business schools. They have to be, uh, you know, they have to, you know, get their people ready to go out to the West Coast and technology. Hey, Mary, thanks so much for joining yeah, us. We really you. appreciate a great story. Mary Beekert, finance reporter for Bloomberg, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And Kaylee, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I think is your question, are they going to keep raising this, this these salaries? I think it'll be interesting to see when they when people do come back to work. Yeah. And, and, and what that means for the work environment because that's so important for you know a lot of these uh, investment banks that do work long long hours. Yeah, totally. And then in terms of doing deals, are you going to be getting back on airplanes, having more of that kind of grueling travel schedule? It's not just about return to the office. It's about return to the general yep. deal-making environment because obviously that has been very different over the last year and change. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.